0: The Tentative Apologist Podcast. Time to think. In this episode of the Tentative Apologist Podcast, I'm going to be addressing the problem of biblical violence, and in particular how we relate biblical violence to the idea that scripture is the inspired word of God. This is a topic I've often talked about, so for those who follow my website regularly, there probably won't be much new here. But what I in fact will be reading is a devotional that I recently gave at a board meeting. So the board in question was probably not expecting, when they invited me to do a devotional, they were probably not expecting a devotional precisely on biblical violence. But this is in fact what I did. So let's begin by reading 2 Timothy three, sixteen 16-17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You might think you know the old German fairy tales told by the Brothers Grimm in their 1812 collection children's and household tales. Cinderella, Snow White, Rapunzel, Hansel and Gretel, and so on. But if you read those stories in their original form, you will find that your popular reminiscences have been more often than not based on the sanitized retellings of our modern age. As my daughter says, these popular stories have been Disneyfied. Take Cinderella as an example. For generations, the 1950 Disney movie has been the standard. How very different is the original telling by the Brothers Grimm? Did you know, for example, that in the original both stepdaughters manage to fit the glass slipper onto their foot? However, each only does so by mutilating her foot. The first amputates her big toe, whilst the other crushes her heel. In each case, the prince is only made aware of their deception when he notices blood squirting from the glass slipper. And their fate is equally grim, or, if not more so, birds sweep down from the heavens and peck the eyes out of these two wicked stepsisters. And that's only a couple examples of the many differences between the grim original and the sunny and sanitized Disney retelling. Like the Brothers Grimm, the Bible is full of violent stories. Sit down and read and keep a tally of the violence, and you will soon discover how many people are stabbed, beheaded, dismembered, sacrificed, burnt, raped, and massacred. A woman is gang raped, and her body is dismembered and sent throughout the land. A king has sex with ten women in public. Women kill and eat their children to survive a famine. A king displays two piles of seventy severed heads. Another king is celebrated because of his prowess at having killed tens of thousands. Often God is not complicit in the violence of the narrative. Sometimes he explicitly condemns it, though often he, ironically, condemns it with still further violence. Other times, however, God commends the violence. Sometimes he even commands it. As philosopher and atheist Stephen Pinker put it in his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, The world's best-selling publication, The Good Book, has been translated into 3,000 languages and has been placed in the nightstands of hotels all over the world. Orthodox Jews kiss it with their prayer shawls. Witnesses in American courts bind their oaths by placing a hand on it. Even the president touches it when taking the oath of office. Yet for all this reverence, the Bible is one long celebration of violence. So says the atheist. The tension presented by the violence of the biblical text is not a new discovery. Barely a century after the life of Christ, the Christian teacher Marcion advocated rejecting the Old Testament altogether, in large part because of the violence he found there. He was summarily excommunicated, but even so, the debates over biblical violence have continued ever since. Marcion's rejection of a portion of the text was declared off-limits, but very often the Church has offered another approach which parallels what Disney did to the tales of the Brothers Grimm. The stories get cleaned up and sanitized for a general audience. Three common ways we avoid the violence is through misrepresentation of it, omission of certain details of the narrative, or distraction by focusing on some other aspect of the narrative. More about each of those methods anon. But first a warning. While this has the obvious benefit of avoiding some unsettling, even shocking texts, there is a real danger that Christians by doing this they will engage they will exchange the biblical narratives we've been given with all their violence, shock, and unique power and exchange them for a collection of insipidly palatable, preachable pericopes. Consider, for example, the battle of Jericho described in Joshua chapter six. The Christian's introduction to the narrative begins in the earliest years of Sunday School with the jocular song, Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho. It continues, as young Christians are inculcated into selective disney readings of the text, readings that tend to avoid the weight of violence, and focus instead on extracting general moral principles that can be readily applied in daily life. All fine, Except that this palatable, preachable pericope has obscured the shock and challenge of the original narrative. Take the example of my daughter's True Images NIV Study Bible. It's directed at young teen girls. Well the True Images Bible includes explanatory reader's notes to help the young reader navigate the turbid waters of difficult biblical passages. So what does it say about Jericho? The editors offer this insight, quote, Going into battle armed with trumpets? This strategy seems crazy if you're looking at it in human terms. When you face challenges, do you rely on your own strength or God's? This editor's note reflects the above-mentioned common strategies that the Church uses to Disneyfy difficult texts. To begin with, misrepresentation. Note that the editor describes the event as a battle, the Battle of Jericho, a term that suggests willing combatants on both sides. But this is misleading at best, for the Canaanites are not marshalling their army for combat. Rather, they are holed up in the city, terrified while Israel prepares an aggressive invasion. The second strategy is omission. In short, the editor's retelling omits, or fails to acknowledge, the most problematic details of the narrative, namely that what the text describes would be considered by the standards of post-World War II international law to constitute not simply an invasion, but a genocide, a war crime of the first order. Granted, that is an anachronistic judgment, but that hardly excuses the moral dimensions of it. Third, we find distraction. In this case, the morally problematic details of the text are obscured by a focus on a general moral lesson. Learn to trust God even when things don't make sense. Blow your trumpet. A valuable lesson, to be sure. But it shouldn't be used as a means to distract from the morally problematic aspects of the text the very issues with which an honest editor should be prepared to grapple." I spend a lot of time interacting with skeptics and atheists, and I've found time and again that while Christians are often familiar with disney readings of violent biblical texts, skeptics and atheists frequently have a better awareness of the actual violence of the narrative. As an illustration of the point, one need look no further than the Skeptic's Annotated Bible. Well, this is an edition of the King James Bible, which is annotated with the notes of a hostile atheist editor. Notes which are devoted to highlighting the very problematic texts that Christians are prone to avoid. To be sure, the Skeptic's Annotated Bible editor is by no means a charitable or sophisticated critic. But even so, his commentary is a bracing challenge to all the true image NIV study Bibles that use various tools to keep the shock and awe at bay. So where does this leave us? If we can't reject portions of the text like Marcion did, and if we ought not disnify the text as in that all-too-common practice, what do we do with it? Let's begin by returning once again to the words of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Note first that Paul doesn't say all scripture conforms to our moral expectations. That's a perennially important caveat to bring to any reader. We are not the last word on any moral issue. Next, keep in mind that Paul also does not say that all scripture is easy to understand, and there may be many violent texts that we are left unsure how to handle. But better to be left with an uncomfortable and recalcitrant text than with a comforting, disney rereading of that text. What Paul does say is that all scripture is god-breathed, theopneustos. But don't be too quick to make your assumptions as to what that means. I suspect many of the problems with digesting the violence of scripture in the history of the church are born by questionable assumptions at the outset as to the meaning of being god-breathed. This is what Paul does say about being god-breathed. It means that scripture has the power to the willing reader to teach, rebuke, correct, and train in righteousness. But what does that look like? How can the idea that the end goal of Scripture is to make us holy, how can that guide our reading of violent texts? I said that Scripture is not easy to understand, and that brings me to an important hermeneutical principle which can help us begin to wrestle with the text. Here it is, read. Read. Read, so as to become more like Jesus. Again, the guide is this, to read the text, so as to become more like Jesus. In his work on Christian doctrine, St. Augustine put it like this, Whoever then thinks that he understands the Holy Scriptures, or any part of them, but puts such an interpretation upon them, as does not tend to build up this twofold love of God and our neighbor, does not yet understand them as he ought. A friend of mine, Old Testament scholar Eric Siebert, unpacks Augustine's principle as follows. He writes, whenever we read and interpret the Bible, we should always be asking whether our interpretation increases our love for God and others. Conversely, if a reading of a biblical text leads you to decrease your love of God or neighbor, You should reconsider your reading i think augustine and eric siebert are right all scripture is god breathed and that includes the violent texts so we should neither reject them nor should we disneyfy them instead we need to read them and at times wrestle with them and with our own moral understandings as well as we seek to be taught rebuked corrected and trained in righteousness to become more like Christ, to increase our love of God and neighbor. Finally, let me note that even if we all begin with a commitment to read texts in a way so as to increase love of God and neighbor, this will not ensure that we will all agree as to the final correct readings of these violent texts. We will not all agree as to the best way to appropriate or apply these texts. And some people will predictably be troubled by the reality of deep and enduring disagreement over the meaning and or the significant of, significance of particular violent passages. Honest questioning, debate, argument, reflection is seen by some to be threatening, even impious. To that end, let me close by turning to a recent stage play called God on Trial, set in the barracks of Auschwitz. The play features a group of Jewish men debating whether God has been faithful to his covenant with Israel. One man stands up in protest. Blasphemy, he says. To even have this conversation is blasphemy. But then a rabbi stands up and replies, He gave us the law, and to debate the law, even on such a terrible subject, is a kind of prayer that's exactly right. Putting away the disney readings, honestly confronting the complexities of the text, wrestling as a community as one submits to being taught, rebuked, corrected, and trained in righteousness, striving to be like Christ and to grow in love of God and neighbor. This way is not easy, but it is necessary, and it is a kind of prayer. Well, that's it for this episode of the Tentative Apologist podcast. For more episodes of the podcast, you can visit us online at randallrauser.com.